Our lives are filled with daily annoyances. <laughs> Our lives are filled with daily annoyances. Slow drivers drive in the fast lane. Fast food is not prepared fast enough. High-speed internet acts more like dial-up internet. We put 10 socks in the washer and only 9 come out. Mystery of the universe. Spreadsheets and children don't always do what we ask them to do. Emails and texts aren't responded to promptly enough. Our lives are filled with daily annoyances. Our lives are also filled with regrets. We regret early educational decisions that locked us into particular careers. We regret the rebellion of our youth. We regret not talking more with our friends or family members. We regret decisions we made in good faith that didn't go as planned. Our lives are filled with regrets. Our lives are filled with affliction. Aging reminds us of the one-way flow of time and that youthful abilities will not come again. I was up in a tree trimming branches yesterday and I am paying the price for that this morning. You can't tell, but this, this podium is holding me up. The affliction of loneliness makes our hearts ache because we feel separated from home or friends or family or even those who live in the same house with us. Our lives are filled with affliction. Our lives are filled with fear. We fear cancer, the IRS, job loss, failure, economic market, markets collapsing, what people will think of us that we're not making a difference in the world. We have daily anxieties or free-floating fears and what we're not exactly sure. Our lives are filled with fear and affliction and regrets and annoyances. But I would argue that none of these miseries are the worst. There's a problem underneath all of these problems. As one theologian says, quote, the whole range of human miseries from restlessness to estrangement through shame and guilt to the agonies of daytime television, all of them tell us that things in human life are not as they ought to be. None of these troubles, however, matter as much as sin. None of these troubles matter as much as sin, end quote. The Bible teaches that sin is the problem underneath all the world's problems. Sin broke the order and harmony and shalom between God and man, man and man, and man and the earth. Sin broke God's world, meaning that every pain, affliction, misery, fear, regret, and annoyance is the result of living in a sin-drenched world. The Bible talks about sin using lots of concepts and images. Sin is breaking God's law. It's failing to trust and give thanks to God. It's missing a target, wandering from a path, straying from a fold. It's a hard heart and a stiff neck. It's spiritual blindness and deafness. It's overstepping and neglect. Sin is both transgression and shortcoming. 
It's doing what we ought not to do and not doing what we ought to do. Sin is like a beast crouching at our doors, we learned in Genesis chapter 4. Sin is found in our desires and our actions, in our minds and our hearts and our hands. It's in our emotions, in our words, in our deeds, in our affections. It's anything that displeases God and therefore deserves blame. Cornelius Plenninga, his book, on sin, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says, quote, Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. Sin, in other words, sin breaks things God made, therefore offending God. Sin wrecks things. But the Bible teaches us that, that, that though it wrecks everything on earth and in our lives, it doesn't wreck God's promises. It doesn't wreck God's promises. The Bible teaches us that grace can and does overcome sin. This is the theme of Genesis 30. You'll begin finding your way to Genesis 30. It will be our text for this morning. Jacob and his family were chosen to be God's means of blessing a cursed world, but Jacob and those around him were a dreadfully sinful people. Just in Genesis 30 alone, we're going to see envy, polygamy, superstition, deception, and theft. But we're also going to see grace continue to triumph in Jacob's life and in his sinful family. Sin wrecked things in Jacob's life, but God's grace overcomes sin. This is the main point of this chapter and the main point of this sermon. Sin wrecks things, but God's grace overcomes sin. Sin wrecks things, but God's grace overcomes sin. We'll break this long chapter into two sections. Verses 1 through 24, we'll see sin at home. 1 through 24, sin at home. And then 25 through 43, sin at work. Sin at work. So sin at home, sin at work. This chapter is going to show us that sin wrecks things, but sin doesn't have the last word in God's program. Number one, sin at home, verses 1 through 24. Genesis 30, beginning in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who, is, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, and then even, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son for Jacob. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah 
bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Number one, sin at home. In this passage, Jacob gains two more wives and eight more children, two from Bilhah, two from Zilpah, three more from Leah, two boys and a girl, and one from Rachel. Now when God, you might remember from 28, chapter 28, when God met Jacob in his dream with the ladder, he told Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. God promised Jacob that he would have a great family, so great that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So when Jacob goes to Haran looking for a wife, he surely has no idea how this is going to happen. But little did he know that he would end up having four wives and 12 sons and a daughter through these four different women. Little did he know that God would use sin to expand his family. I just can't imagine that was Jacob's plan as he journeyed up to Haran. That I'm going to delve into polygamy and have some surrogate moms, have all these kids, and become a great family through sinful choices. Now, last week we saw in chapter 29 how Jacob's father-in-law Laban tricked him into marrying both his daughters in return for 14 years of work. Polygamy was not what Jacob originally wanted. He just wanted to marry Rachel. He knew it wasn't what God wanted. His ancestors, no doubt, had taught him that, that God had made man, or excuse me, marriage for a man and a woman. One man and one woman. But Jacob's desire for Rachel was greater than his desire to obey God, so he bargains with Laban so he could have her as a second wife. And by the end of 29, as we saw last week, both of Jacob's wives are desperate. One is desperate for love, the other is desperate for children. Verse 1 of chapter 30 tells us exactly how Rachel felt about this situation. Chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Rachel was embarrassed and humiliated as she watched her sister bring four 
boys into the world while she remained barren. Her envy didn't allow her to enjoy the blessings she did have. She did have like Jacob's love. In her envy, she'd forgotten that her barrenness was God's doing, that he alone is the giver of life. Her envy was blinding her heart. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Have you ever stopped to consider what envy is? What is envy? Here's the best definition I could come up with. Envy is the desire for that which is not ours and the begrudging of the person who actually possesses it. I'll say it again. Envy is the desire for that which is not ours and the begrudging of the person who actually possesses it. Envy is not primarily wanting what someone else has. The best word for that is coveting. Envy is that and having a grudge that someone else has what you want. Envy is not wanting them to be happy. Envy is wanting them to be miserable. Envy is when our joy increases when someone else suffers or fails. Envy puts us in God's place where we decide who deserves what. Envy is like murder in that it wishes to harm someone or wishes harm for someone. Envy is like covetousness in that it wants what it doesn't have. So you might say envy is a deadly concoction of breaking the first, sixth, and tenth commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit. You shall not covet. I was asking Susie last night, like, why is coveting in the, the top ten of God's rules but not envy? She helped me see that envy is this mixture of lots of these commandments. Miss, when our hearts are misfiring, specifically towards someone else. And envy is all over the Bible. It's why Cain killed Abel. Jesus says envy is an evil thing that comes out of our hearts and defiles us. Paul lists envy alongside sexual immorality and sorcery as a work of the flesh that mark those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let that sink in for a minute. Our envy is just as evil as sexual immorality and sorcery. According to Paul, that's Galatians 5, 20, uh, 19-21. Envy is a deadly sin because it sends people to hell. What creates an envious heart? Well, envy can be caused by someone else's wealth, Psalm 73.3. It can be caused by political and military strength, as when Saul heard the women singing for joy over David's rise to power. It can be created through fertility, as we see here in Genesis 30. It can be caused by favoritism in the family, as when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they envied their father's favoritism toward him. Envy is caused when we see the Spirit's work in other people or other churches, like when the religious leaders envied the apostles. 
wanted them dead. Or when the religious leaders envied Jesus' popularity and wanted Him dead. It's interesting how often in the Bible envy led to murderous rage. Joseph, apostles, Jesus, Cain and Abel. Envy left unchecked creates murderous desires. Envy is no small thing, brothers and sisters. Envy is something we feel that ends up influencing what we do. I tried to come up with some examples. This is my best shot at maybe some things we do that, that perhaps reveal an envious heart. Envy may be why we use cutting and sarcastic humor, tearing people down in order to build ourselves up. Envy is why we're upset instead of excited when something good happens to someone else. Instead of rejoicing with them, we think that they don't deserve that, didn't earn that. Maybe they haven't came by that thing shamefully. Envy is why we're secretly happy when something bad happens to someone else. When we're secretly happy when something bad happens to someone else. We're maybe, maybe secretly or not so secretly, we're, we're, we say things like, I'm so glad the, the tornado went to that town and not our town, or the hurricane went to that city and not my city, or cancer struck that family but not my family, or abuse happened to that person but not me. Listen to what Solomon says about that. He says, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. He who is glad at the calamity of the world will not go unpunished, Proverbs 17.5. Envy is there, I think, when calm and peace escape our hearts. Again, Solomon says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 14.30 Envy is there when our work ethic is driven by a desire to prove ourselves rather than the desire to glorify God and bless others. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. One reason work can start to feel futile is when it's driven by envy. Working to be better than others rather than bless others is exhausting, my brothers and sisters. But perhaps the main way our envy is revealed, and it can be revealed in more ways, I'm sure, but perhaps the main way it's revealed is in our struggle to, to honor and encourage the gifts and talents we see in other people. Our struggle to honor and encourage the gifts and talents we see in other people. John, John Calvin actually talks about this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin talks about how we hide our own vices, sometimes even pretending like our vices are virtues. But when we think of others, we respond very differently. He says, quote, If others manifest the same good endowments we admire in ourselves, or even superior ones, we spitefully belittle and revile these gifts in order to avoid yielding place to such persons. End quote. In other words, you see what he's saying? We love to downplay people's strengths and exaggerate their weaknesses. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this daily. Oh, how quick I am to point out something I don't like at home. How slow 
am I to encourage and honor? This is, by the way, a very different approach than the one advocated by the Apostle Paul when Paul says in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Make it a competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. Or when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. Or pre- Peter, perhaps, when he says, honor everyone. 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone. Envy hinders us from obeying these commands. We don't just want what other, others have. We begrudge them for having it, which makes it impossible to honor them and to love them. Envy is why we focus on someone's weaknesses rather than their strengths, while we find it so hard to speak encouraging words to one another. I might just ask you, members of our church, when was the last time you went out of your way to encourage another member of the church? Not flattery, not just empty words, but a genuine, specific, timely word to build up another brother or sister in Christ. When was the last time? I love what Dane Ortland says. He says, you should encourage someone 10 times before you criticize them. I think that's a good balance. It's usually the exact opposite. The Bible commands us to encourage one another. I've been praying this week that we'd be growing in that, that I'd be growing in that. I'm so quick to see things I don't like and not praise the things that I do. Envy kills our ability to love each other. If we're always comparing and competing with others in our hearts, we won't be able to love them. We can't love people we envy. And we can't walk in joy if we're walking in envy. According to researchers, envy is one of the leading causes of unhappiness. Teddy Roosevelt is credited with saying that comparison is the thief of joy. Then Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. To be happy with those who are happy, but will never be happy for people we're secretly competing against. Envy, brothers and sisters, envy kills Christian community. I wanted to spend some time on this because envy lurks in my heart. And envy, according to verse 1, is the sinful impulse behind all the dysfunction that follows in this chapter. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. If Rachel had rejoiced with her sister instead of despising her, the pain and polygamy and superstition that follows could have been avoided. But her sin of envy wrecked their family. Verses 3 through 21, birth wars commence as a result of Rachel's envy. Rachel thinks that she can catch up with Leah through her servant Bilhah. Her plan appears to start working. She has Dan and Naphtali. Or Naphtali. Leah, not wanting to be outdone, gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. Also, her plan works, and Zilpah has Gad and Asher. And then we come to the strange episode about the mandrakes. I'm sure you were wondering what's going on with the mandrakes, verses 14 through 16. But he said to her, 
excuse me, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. In the ancient world, mandrakes were believed to be a love potion, an aphrodisiac or fertility drug. It's even mentioned in the Song of Solomon. The power of mandrakes, however, was superstitious, uh, superstitious not scientific. But nonetheless, Rachel and Leah believed in the mandrake myth, and they used them to trade for something that should never be traded. 15, Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Do you see what she did? You give me your mandrakes, then you can have sex with Jacob. Trading for something that should never be traded for. It seems that Rachel controls which of Jacob's four wives get to sleep with him and when. Leah has been kept away from her husband for some time and resorts to bargaining to be with him again. Both these women are desperate. Leah is de desperate for love. Rachel desperate for children. And as envy rises, all sorts of dysfunction and weird superstition and sin result. But the text makes it clear that the mandrakes don't work because Leah, the one who gave them up, has two more sons and a daughter. While Rachel, who has the mandrakes, remains childless. That's 17 through 21. Then, 22 through 24, it says Rachel finally has her first child. God remembered Rachel. Just like he remembered Noah on the ark. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. There in 22, it says God listened to her, which means that she was praying for a child. Probably daily, hourly, praying for a child. So it seems that the beautiful, favored wife has finally come to the end of herself. Her scheming and superstition didn't work. She finally realizes that surrogates and mandrakes aren't going to help her. So in her sin and distress, she finally turns to God for help. And God heard her and answered her and opens her womb. And she has a son, Joseph. Verse 22, where it says, Her womb was opened, God opened her womb, reminds us of 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was, or Leah, however you want to say that, was hated, He opened her womb. There's a bookend here. Both sisters had children only because God did it. God saw each of them and vi visited each of them in their pain and affliction. This was all grace. Neither of these daughters or sisters deserved it or earned it. But God moves towards them with blessing anyway. Why? Because God's grace was bigger than their shame and their sin and their superstition. Envy didn't stop God's grace from coming into Rachel's life. And it won't stop His grace from coming into our life either. So sin at home. That's number one. Number two, sin at work. 25 through 43, we see sin starts showing up in Jacob's life, in his workplace, if you will. 
Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go down, excuse me, that I go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen." Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of of Laban's flock. 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks come to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. Sin at work. Jacob's family has multiplied greatly, but he still isn't prosperous or in the place, Canaan, where God said would be his. So he asked Laban in 25 and 26 to send him away, and all he asked for are his wives and children. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Verse 26. But Laban, ever the deal maker, asked Jacob to name his price to stay. 28, name your wages and I will give it. He says that he's been blessed because of Jacob. And Jacob basically says in 29 through 30, yeah, I could have told you that. Yeah, of course, you, you know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared and how you had a little bit before I came and now you have a lot after I've been here. Laban's concern is always money. It's always money. His only desire was for the prosperity that would come through association with Jacob. Jacob had only asked for his family. But Laban responds by talking about money. Jacob says, give him my family and I'll get out of here. Laban's like, name your wages. (laughs) One commentator says, Laban knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. 
Jacob wants to be able to provide for his family on his own. So he asks, okay, now, verse 30, when shall I provide for my own household also? Laban says, what shall I give you? 31. Jabin says he'll keep shepherding Laban's flock if he can keep all the spotted and black sheep and goats. Jacob is trying to prevent Laban from being able to cheat him again. And Laban agrees to this deal. But then he removes all the spotted and black goats and sheep that were supposed to be Jacob's and sends them away with his sons. Laban deceives Jacob yet again, this time stealing, outright stealing what was supposed to be Jacob's. When Jacob realizes what's happened, he resorts to superstition, just like Rachel, by the way. He resorts to superstition to get back at Laban. He thinks that sticks peeled with some bark peeled off will cause spotted lambs to be born to the animals that mate in front of the sticks. He's believing what the superstitious and pagan culture around him believed, that there was some hidden force in creation that could be manipulated if you just got the forms and the timing right. He's resorting to superstition. There's absolutely nothing scientific about his approach. Now, when we zoom out from this chapter, we see that Jacob and Rachel are both walking by sight, not by faith. They each resort to superstition rather than prayer. Rachel's mandrakes don't produce fertility. And Jacob's sticks don't produce spotted Lambs, as he even acknowledges in chapter 31, verse 9. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So Jacob will credit God for his livestock increasing, not his superstition. God is the one who moved to bless Rachel. God is the one who moved to bless Jacob. Jacob, it says in 43, has now become a rich man. The man increased greatly, had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. He's a rich man. The Lord is starting to fulfill His promises He made at Bethel. Despite the polygamy and envy at birth, during the birth wars, Jacob was starting to become a great people, a great family, and in a way that was clearly the work of God. Again, that wasn't Jacob's plan, but it's the way that God intended it to happen. Likewise, his prosperity is solely the result of God's work. Laban knew it. Jacob knew it. One day all the nations would know it. Soon Jacob would head home. Journey to the land God had promised him. But God will have to work all that out too, as we'll see in the chapters to come. So this chapter is full of scheming, manipulation, envy, surrogate competition, love potions, selling of sex, gloating, humiliation, and superstition. Sin continues to disrupt the harmony God intended for Jacob's family. This chapter is full of sin. This chapter is full of sin. As I was reading this text, I was like, what is the main organizing theme of this chapter? And I just couldn't get beyond how jacked up this chapter is, which is kind of like a lot of chapters in Genesis. But maybe this one especially. This chapter is full of sin. Of every variety. Now, one of the temptations that we face when we hear a preacher talk about sin is to assume that he's talking about everybody else. Amen? But friends, the Bible says we're all like Rachel and Jacob, doesn't it? On some level, we're all envious rather than encouraging. Sexually deviant rather than pure. Superstitious rather than prayerful. Deceptive instead of truthful. Thieves instead of generous. Sin has wrecked our lives. 
sin that we've done and sin done to us. Being around the church, whether you grew up in the church or you've been a Christian for a while, being around the church is a good thing. But it can lead us to think that we're somehow not contaminated with the poison of sin like everyone, quote unquote, out there. But we are. But we are. But we are. Do you believe that? Our envy and impure thoughts and harsh words and prayerlessness should be all the evidence we need to believe that even people like us with a religious veneer are sinners. Self-righteousness is just as worthy of God's judgment as unrighteousness. We were all born with the same heart disease as Jeffrey Dahmer and Adolf Hitler. And I really, mean, I really mean that. The same heart disease lurks in all of our hearts. None of us is righteous, Paul says. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even, not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Sin, in other words, sin isn't a concept in a book. It's a corruption running through our blood, a corruption that no one is exempt from. We're all like Jacob and Rachel in more ways than we'd care to admit. Sin wrecked things in their life, and it's wrecked things in your life. But the good news, of course, is that God's grace overcomes human sin. God's promises weren't nullified by all the sin in this chapter. God told Jacob, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you a great family. I'm going to give you a place. What happens in this chapter? A whole lot of sin. And Jacob's family becomes great. And God starts to prosper Jacob. Grace triumphs sin over sin in this chapter. Why? Because God's grace is bigger and stronger and greater than any sin. Of course, the most obvious place to see this is not perhaps here in Genesis 30, though it is here. Perhaps the most obvious place to see God's grace is by looking at God's Son hanging on a cross. Bloody, naked, laughed at, spat upon, cursed in every kind of agony imaginable. Why did He hang there? Why did He hang there? Why did Jesus hang there? For your sin. For your sins. Not the person you've been thinking about while I've been preaching. He hung there for the ways you've hurt people. For your envious heart. For your coveting and idolatry. For your failure to be content in God. For your thinking that sermons like this are for someone else. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. Jesus hung there for our sin. And the good news, of course, is that the benefits of His death are for anyone willing to admit that they've sinned against the God who made them and confess that Jesus is their only hope. Sin has wrecked our lives, but grace can overcome our sin. And the epicenter of His grace, the fountain from which it flows, is a bloody cross. So look to Jesus on the cross, dying for your sins, and be amazed 
maybe one of the reasons we grow tired or not moved when we sing about the cross or talk about the cross is because we aren't being honest about our sin. Be honest, friends, about your sin. And then and only then will you taste the sweetness of Jesus' grace. So this begs a very personal question. What sins, friends, what sins do you need to be honest about this morning? What things are you suppressing and keeping from God and keeping from those who love you? What ways are you breaking God's law and hurting those made in God's image? What sins do you need to confess to God today? And look, I'm not setting up a confessional out in the foyer. This is not a Catholic thing. I'm not a priest. I'm just a guy. There's one priest, Jesus Christ. What sins do you need to tell him about? Do you need to agree with him about? What ways has envy, perhaps, corrupted your heart and hindered your love towards the people around you? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's the good news. If we confess our sins, this is great news. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Free and full forgiveness is available to all who feel their need for it. Jesus is the friend of sinners, not pretenders. Again, self-righteousness will send you to hell just as fast as unrighteousness. What ways have you elevated yourself through comparing and competition that no one sees because it's all inside, but what ways have you elevated yourself above all those around you? Your wife, your kids, your church members, your friends, your coworkers. What, what way is pride dominating your heart? We need to be honest about these things, brothers and sisters, with God and with each other. The good news is, <laughs> this is great news, we'll never, we'll never confess a sin that isn't already covered by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Jesus is the friend of sinners. And He's ready to make His home with everyone who feels their need for Him. Let's pray together. Father, Please come minister your grace to us. Please give us grace and courage to be honest about where we are, what we've done or what we're doing. Please help us to see things that we're not seeing. Sin is so blinding. Maybe we have no peace because envy just plagues our heart. I don't know what the case is for people in this room. Father, you do. Please help us. Please help us. Please help us to see the things that are robbing us of our joy, 
and hindering our love for you, our love for one another. Give us honest, transparent hearts before you. And then as James says, help us to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. (laughs) So that we may be healed. Give us grace. There's no way we can do this in our own strength. um, As a result of our own resources, we just don't have them. We don't have the ability to be really honest about where we are. So help us, Father. Bring us back to the cross day after day, remembering Jesus' sacrifice was for our sins and not just for all those secular people out there, you know. Give us a a deep and abiding sense of our need, of our need, not everyone else's. Help us in this, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.